Excited to be with you this morning again. My name is Pastor Bobby Knight, and uh, this morning as I was coming up in, to, to the church, uh, my life got threatened because, uh, you know, Baptists love food. And so I was warned that I have to keep it brief so the food don't get cold. So I am very aware of the food. But I'm also aware that the Spirit of the Lord is in here, and we're going to abide in His Word, and we're going to learn from His Word this morning. And I just want to go ahead and warn you, last time that I was speaking, I was talking about loving your neighbor and this morning, I'm going to bring it in a little bit more personable and, and personal to us. And so it, it might not tickle your hearts a whole lot, but the Word of God does not return void. And it will help you in your life, in your relationships. And so I just want to invite you this morning just to lean into God's Word. Let's lean into what He's saying to us. Help us not to focus on the food. We'll get to it. Um, but let's, let us focus in on God's Word. So I'm, I'm going to start this morning with, with praying, and we'll get started. Father, we come into your presence to worship you, to slow down our lives and focus in on you. Father, we're sitting at your feet this morning, desiring, desiring your Word, passionate to know you more. And so we pray that your Word speaks to us in an incredible way. May it convict us. May it transform us to become more like you. And so, Father, this holy moment that we have united as your church to worship you is to bring you honor and you glory. And, Father, our heart's desire is to crown you with praise and join all of creation in worshiping you, our God. And so, Father, this morning is for you in Jesus' name. Well, I believe that all of us, if I was to ask the question, have you ever had an enemy in your life, I believe all of us could raise our hands. So when I say that, there's probably a particular person that probably comes to your mind when I ask you, have you ever had an enemy? Turn to your neighbor, tell your neighbor who your enemy is. I think I already heard it. Uh, one definition of enemy is something harmful or something deadly. Now, enemies are a byproduct of sin. And we all have some sort of enemies in our lives. Some of the en enemies that we have in our life, we know who they are. We can see them. Some of them we cannot see. Some of the greatest enemies that we have are in our own mind. And our enemy always looks to harm us, looks to attack our weakness, maybe even seeks to destroy us. But know one thing, that enemies always look for weakness, always looks for faults. And one of our greatest weaknesses is our heart. Scripture says, my flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh and my heart, in Psalm 73, 26, may fail, but God is my strength, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Satan himself is our enemy, and he's always looking to attack an unprotected heart. 
And so today we're going to discover four emotions that Satan uses to attack our heart. Four emotions that Satan uses to attack an unprotected heart. And these enemies, uh, they become lodged in our heart. And when we allow them to lodge into our heart, then what happens is they poison our relationships and our faith and our character. Satan himself is the one who gives these emotions strength. And if we leave, leave it to Satan or leave them to their own, they grow in power and influence. But we'll later discover that these emotions, they lose their power when they are exposed to light. And so let's talk about what these four emotions are. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. You're writing it out, I'm going to repeat it for you. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Now, each one of these emotions, they result in a debt-to-debtor relationship. It's a dynamic that causes an imbalance in any relationship. Now, debt and an unbalanced power in a dysfunctional relationship is a recipe for disaster. We are a society who thinks that we can live with debt. The average household debt is $100,000. Think about that. Think about how many people are okay with renting to owning, with leasing, with buying things with no money down, no interest, and no payments. For months. So we have learned to live as if we have everything paid in full, but in actuality, we're carrying a massive amount of debt. Now, we're able to get by with that somewhat financially, right? But emotional and relational debt, they accrue interest at a staggering rate. Dysfunction, intention, compound daily under the weight of the debt when it comes to relational debt, and it makes us crumble. So there are two ways to resolve this kind of debt. Number one, somebody has to pay up. Somebody has to pay up. Or number two, somebody has to cancel the debt. As long as the debt is unpaid, as long as the debt is unforgiven, the debt will govern our relationships and it will become a filter for everything in our relationships. So this morning, I want to look a little bit closer with each one of these enemies of our hearts because these are emotions and enemies that Satan uses to attack you and to attack me. The very first emotion is guilt. Now, when you think of a debt-to-debtor relationship, guilt means I owe you. Think about that. Guilt means I owe you. How many times have you guilted or been guilted into doing something? Somebody has guilted you into doing something. Or how many times have you guilted 
someone else into doing something. Guilt has caused a lot of actions and a lot of reactions through the years. And that is the power of debt resulting from guilt. Guilt says, I owe you. Guilt is the result of having done something we perceive as wrong. Every wrong we can do or every wrong we we do can be restated as an act of theft. Because if I steal from you, then guess what? I what? I owe you. If I take something from you, I owe you. So when your heart is filled with guilt, the message in your heart is, I owe you. I'm going to give you an example. Man runs off with another woman and abandons his family. Not realizing it, he stole something from every family member. He stole his wife's first marriage, robbed her of her future, her financial security, her reputation as a wife. He stole from the children and all that means in the home. He robbed him of Christmas traditions, emotional and financial security, dinners with the family, family time, bedtime stories, on and on. The man does not realize at first all the stuff that he has stolen. At first, all he's thinking about is what he has gained. But the first time his little girl asks him why he doesn't love mommy, his heart becomes stirred. And then he begins to feel guilty. Daddy now owes daughter something. So what happens is a debt-to-debtor relationship has been established. This, This same thing happens every time you or I, we wrong another person. We create this same dynamic. We even have our own terminology for it. And it's a result of guilt. And here's the terminology. I owe her an apology. I owe him an apology. Because our hearts feel like we took something from them. So we owe. Now we're a debtor. Consequently, the only way to make things right or to pay up, even if the only available currency is I'm sorry, we still feel obligated to pay something. The damage of guilt compounds at a staggering rate. So let's continue the previous story. The dad begins to make a series of debt-motivated decisions that causes even more damage because what he begins to do is he begins to attempt to buy love Excessive spending on the child, which gives the child a corrupted view of self-worth. And so what happens is the debt becomes an expense to the child instead of the dad carrying the debt. And this dynamic isn't reserved just for broken homes. How many couples have you seen that have pursued their careers or financial gains? And created an IOU situation at home. They spend all their time at work chasing the dollar, chasing the raise, chasing the promotion. They spend all this time at work and it creates an IOU situation at home. 
We've seen it over and over. And let me share with you just a little bit, a quick uh, nugget I learned over the year, years. Love is spelled T-I-M-E. That's how you spell love. Permissiveness and materialism has become the currency to pay the debt. And once again, the child loses out. Listen, the only way for dad to pay the, the debt is to go home and tuck his kids in bed, to stay there for his kids. Unfortunately, this rarely happens. So what's the biggest cost? Bad relational decisions cost a lot. But the decisions that you can't make will cost you the most. Proverbs 22.7 says, The borrower is slave to the lender. In other words, authority belongs to those that are owed, not to those who owe. And this is true with moral authority also. So I, I have uh, sat with many parents over the years, can't even tell you how many, who, who are heartbroken because they lost all moral, moral authority from bad choices that they made. Many times they try to blame the children, but it's because of the bad decisions that they made. Their children then are making destructive decisions, and there was nothing they could do. The parents were in a position of debt that cost them their moral authority. It cost them their influence at the most important time in their child's life. And so more decisions and more destructive decisions were made and more lives were affected. All the result of an unpaid debt from guilt. Nothing less than paying the guilt, paying the debt will relieve a guilty heart of its burden of guilt. People try to pay it off, work it off, give it off, pray it off. No amount of good deeds, community service, charitable giving, sitting in the pews on Sunday will relieve the guilt because it's a debt. It must be paid or canceled in order for a guilty heart to experience relief. The second enemy of your heart is anger. Now, in a debt-to-debtor relationship, Anger means that you owe me. Anger is the result of not getting something that you want. You get angry if somebody else gets the promotion. When a child doesn't get a toy at Walmart, they get angry. When a teen doesn't get a new iPhone or a new PlayStation, they get angry. When a person doesn't get the respect that they think that they deserve, they get angry. Think about a time when you were really angry. Every time we're angry, we can boil it down to this. You wanted something that you didn't get. And you didn't get what you were convinced that you deserved. And so when you interpret that, you interpret it as somebody owes me. Go back to the abandoned family scenario. Chances are you probably know one, two, three, four 
families where possibly the, the father or the mother ran off. There's a pretty good possibility that they had anger issues. The kids had anger issues, and that's to be expected because the, the, many things were taken from them. Dad took the opportunity for a normal life. He stole the family unit. So a kid or even an adult that's coming out of this situation has every right to be angry because he was ripped off of his family unit and somebody owes them. In this case that we're talking about, it's the dad. The kids that he had to leave because their mom, excuse me, because uh, they had been ripped off and someone owes them. In this case, their dad um, could possibly bring the mom into the situation. A lot of times you have the dad who will say, well, I left the home because mom did this or she did that or she, she didn't do this or she didn't do that. And when dad does that, that brings mom into this whole situation. And then all of a sudden the child feels that the mom owes them something also. If you show me an angry person, I will show you a hurt person. Think about that. And I guarantee you that the person is hurt because something has been taken. Someone owes them something, even if it's only an apology. We, we all know people who could verbalize uh, their anger something like this. You took my reputation. You took my family. You took the best years of my life. You took my first marriage. You robbed me of my teenage years. You robbed me of my purity. You owe me. You owe me a raise. You owe me an opportunity. You owe me an opportunity to try. You owe me a second chance. You owe me affection. You owe me respect. You owe me loyalty. The root of anger is the perception that something has been taken and something is owed to you. And now you have a debt-to-debtor relationship that's been established. And here's the tragedy to that. In most cases, the perceived debt cannot be paid off. How do you pay off your 18-year-old son that you weren't there for? It can't be done. People spend much of their lives waiting for debts to be paid that can't be paid. The opportunity to make things right is long gone. But guess what remains? The anger. The anger remains. And not only does it remain, it intensifies and it spreads like wildfire. Anger refuses to be isolated. Anger refuses to be appropriately focused. When anger is lodged in your heart for too long, then you begin to believe that everybody owes you. And we characterize these people as angry people. Anger itself is a heart disease. People with anger that is lodged in, in their heart, they're sick. And sick people, guess how they act? Sick. Anger gains its strength from secrecy. Exposing it is painful and powerful at the same time. 
Now, anger won't come as a surprise to people that are closest to you or the people who love you, but anger cannot stand the light of exposure because to share your anger would drag the anger into light. And most of us would rather keep our anger to ourselves, allowing anger to further damage and control our heart. So here's a question for you. How long are you going to allow people you don't even like, people who are no longer in your life, maybe even people who are not alive anymore to control your life, to control your emotions, to control your relationships? I believe it's ridiculous to allow people who have hurt you the most to have the most influence in your life. And the great thing is you have a choice in the matter. You can't undo what's been done, but you don't have to let the past control your future. You can't use anger as an ally. You can't use it to get your way. You can't use anger to get things accomplished. Your anger doesn't make you great. It doesn't make you strong. It doesn't make you a better leader, a better parent, a better disciplinarian. It doesn't make you a successful coach. It's not effective, it's not successful, and it certainly doesn't make you stronger. The people who interact with you sees your anger as your weakness. A heart filled with anger is a heart looking to be paid back. The third enemy we're going to talk about of our heart this morning is greed. Now, greed in a debt-to-debtor relationship means that I owe me. Think about greed. Get that in your mind. Greedy people believe that they deserve every, every good thing that comes their way. They deserve it. What's mine is mine, and I deserve what I have. It's hard to get a greedy person to part with their money and their stuff because it's theirs. And greed is different than the other three enemies of the heart because greed disguises itself. How many people do you know that will shout out that they're greedy? Not many. It disguises itself. So you may be greedy if you're always talking about money, if you're not a cheerful giver, if you're reluctant to share your stuff, if you quabble over insignificant sums of money, you always talk about just having barely enough to get by, You don't let others forget what you've done for them. You don't express gratitude. You aren't content with what you have. Or you try to control people with your money. Greed knows no socioeconomic boundaries. There's greedy rich people and there's greedy poor people. Greed is not a financial issue. Greed is a heart issue. So my question is, is this an issue for you this morning? Consider this warning by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 12, 15. It says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. I'm going to say it again. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
Be on guard. Because greed, greed is subtle. It's so subtle. It's the most subtle of all four enemies of your heart. The greatest driving factor behind greed is fear. Greed is always supported by endless cast of of what ifs. What if I lose my money? What if the economy crashes? What if I don't have enough? What if I don't get my fair share? What if my friends have more than I have? People with greed that is lodged in their hearts fear that God can't either uh, take care of them or won't take care of them. Really, they're afraid that, that God won't take care of them in the fashion and the style that they want to be cared for. So greedy people take on the burden themselves to acquire and maintain everything they need to provide them with a sense of security. The problem with that is there's never enough. There's never enough. Greedy people can never have enough to satisfy their need. They always have a strong desire to acquire more stuff, more money. And so their appetites cannot be satisfied. Greedy people are never at peace with themselves. Eventually, it strains every relationship that they have, and it erodes relationships. Greed itself is a silent killer, and especially a silent killer of a spiritual heart. The fourth enemy of your heart is jealousy. In the debt-to-debtor relationship, jealousy means that God owes me. When we think about jealousy or envy, we immediately think about others who have more than we do. We immediately begin to think about what we lack. We lack looks, skills, hair, opportunities, health, height, inheritance. We think our lives would be way better if God would have taken care of us like he did our neighbors or other people. If I was skinnier, prettier, more athletic, more charismatic, richer, smarter, you name it, the list goes on and on and on. We begin to question God. We begin to question God and what he was thinking. And so your problem really isn't with the person who has more than you or who has something that you don't have. Your problem is with your creator. You believe that he owes you. Our our jealousy, it rarely manifests itself or surfaces itself in our interaction with God. We think of our jealousy as an issue with other people. We think of jealousy as an issue with our friend. We don't think it's a grudge that we're holding against God. None of us think that, but that's exactly what it is. Jealousy usually shows its ugly head in our interaction, in our relationships with other people. And what's funny is that the people we're jealous of, they can't do anything about it. I want you to think about this. Can your all-star brother make you a better athlete? Can your brother or sister who's going to Harvard, can they make you smarter? Think about that. Can your 
best friend make you skinnier? Would it really help you if your neighbor bought you the same car that they had? Not really. The whole idea that God owes you something is absurd. Because we owe God everything, right? So as long as you deceive yourself into believing that your problem is with your all-star brother, you will never get to the root issue. The tension will never be resolved. Well, almost never. The reason the people you are jealous of can't do anything to fix your problem is because the problem is not with them, it's with your creator. So when jealousy goes unchecked, no relationship that you have is safe. None of them. I've seen wives who are so jealous of their husband, they can't even say anything nice about them in public. And the fact is, somebody's upset with God. And in most cases, that person doesn't even know it. So we have talked about and we discussed the four enemies of the heart. And my objective was for you to get your mind around the four enemies of your heart, which is good, but it's even better to figure out what we do about it. In our own personal lives, what do we do about it? And so what we're going to do is we're going to confront each emotion of our heart, and we're going to see what we can do about it. So let's confront guilt. One thing about guilt is that secrets lose their their power when they're exposed to light. The light that exposes our secrets and frees our hearts from the oppressor and the power of guilt is confession, is confession. And not just a simple confession like, yes, mom, I broke your vase. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is what? He's faithful. Not only is he faithful, he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness. This can be become a very easy escape hatch if we're not careful. Because I believe that our approach as a, as a family of God, as believers, as Christians, our approach to confession many times is an insult to our Heavenly Father. And so I want to talk a little bit about confession. Confession is, is Scripture, and Scripture is associated with change, restitution, repentance, and restoration. Change, restitution, repentance, and restoration. In the Old Testament, confession was always public, which is very interesting, and it was always associated with restitution. And so I want you to consider this from Moses in Numbers uh, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and, is, and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done. Then listen to this. And add a fifth of the value to it and give all the person, all to the person they have wronged. 
So for the Jew, it wasn't about feeling better about yourself. It was about making things right. Making things right with the one that you've sinned against. And not only making it right, add 5% interest to it. God's interested in change. And here, God's interested in changing them going public to motivate them to change. When John the Baptist came onto the, the scene, he called out for repentance as well as confession of your sins. You found that in Mark chapter 1. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan. Confessing their sins. It wasn't a private confession. It was a public confession. Made in connection with public repentance. So John's audience was going public. And their whole intention was change, to live a different type of life. They were not confessing just to silence their conscience. They were ready to leave their sin, leave their sin behind, to move forward, to go into a different direction. They were taking the first steps to abandon in sin. James, the half-brother of Jesus, had this to say, about the role of confession in the life of a believer in James uh, chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. He said, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, listen to this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Open confession has the power to break the cycle of sin. Confess your sins to the people you have sinned against. Odds are you probably won't go back and commit the same sin. Maybe that's the reason we would rather take our sin to God and confess our sins silently to God. As long as you're trying to ease your confession by telling God how sorry you are, you're setting yourself up to repeat it again. However, confession, the way that God designed it and the way that God meant it to be applied breaks the sin, the cycle of sin and guilt. Now let's confront anger. The remedy for anger is forgiveness. The remedy for anger is forgiveness. Guilty people need to get in the habit, or angry people need to get in the habit of forgiving. God demands in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and what? Anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. We are commanded by God to get rid of anger. Now, the Greek term translated here as get rid of, means to remove or to separate yourself from. Paul instructs the believers to rid themselves of any traces of bitterness and anger. And he goes on into verse 32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, 
forgiven each other. So Paul, he, he suggests that we expend, uh, extend kindness and compassion to those that, we have, th- those that have wronged us. It's the forgiveness that allows us to be kind and compassionate. And Paul continues to go deeper and he says, forgiving each other just as Christ has forgiven you. So kindness and compassion, they're fueled by forgiveness. Your pain, your anger isn't a trophy to show off. It's not a story to tell. It's potentially poison for your soul. To refuse to forgive is to choose to self-destruct. So how do you slay your anger? Number one, you need to identify who you're angry with. Who is it that you're angry with? And then determine what is it that they owe you? What do they owe you? Is it an apology? I don't know. What is it that they owe you? Then you cancel the debt and you dismiss the case. You decide and declare, you don't owe me. You don't owe me anymore. So identify who you're angry with, determine what they owe you, cancel the debt, dismiss the case. That's how you're going to confront anger. Confronting greed, to eliminate greed, give. That seems pretty simple. Ask yourself, why do I have so much? How, why do I have excess? Why, why do I have more than I need? And then ask God this question. What do you want me to do with my extra? What do you want me to do, for, uh, do with my extra? Don't wait for God to change your heart for you to start giving. Start giving as the opening for God to change your heart. Matthew 5, 42 says, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. If God has blessed you with more than you need, it's so that you can share your abundance with those who are in need. Embracing that simple truth is the key of ridding your heart from greed. Generous giving will break the grip of greed in your life. So whether or not you think that you have extra, give and give generously. Because who owns everything? God. First Chronicles 29.11 says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Now listen to this. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Everything is yours, Lord. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted. You are head of all. So we are the manager. God is the owner. Understanding that will free you from the fear of loss. Of loss. Fear of loss of goods. Fear of loss in life. And more concern with avoiding, avoiding total loss in the life to come. Jealousy. How do you get rid of that enemy? The way to get rid of jealousy is to celebrate. Jealousy begins when we don't get what we want. 
So make a habit of congratulating and celebrating others for their accomplishments. Celebrate the success of those people that you envy. Go out of your way to verbally express your congratulations over their accomplishments. And this alone has to become a habit. So celebrating the success of those that you envy will allow you to conquer those emotions that have the potential to drive a wedge in your relationships. So we need to pray for an establishment of godly habits to root out the enemies in our hearts. Settle your outstanding debts with yourself, with others, and with God. That's what he's done for us. His grace changed our debt-to-debtor dynamic forever because he paid the price. He canceled the debt. He gave us a new heart. We no longer are guilty, angry, greedy, or jealous. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you now, we just ask that in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our relationships, Father, we will confess everything. Father, we ask that we forgive everyone. Help us to have a forgiven heart. Help us to give unselfishly. And Father, we ask that we will be people that celebrate others. Father, we do this for your honor, for your glory, for you are a God alone. And we need you in every aspect of our lives. We need you to guard our hearts, to guard our minds. Father, we need you to get rid of jealousy, of envy, of anger, of hurt, of pain. Father, we need you to get rid of our greed, Father. And may we be your children, your people, Father, that are constantly loving other people, confessing and forgiving and celebrating other people. Father, as we just close out this time with this final song, Father, I just pray that you just open up our hearts, the eyes in our hearts to see what you need us to see, to confront what we need to confront, to confess what we need to confess, to give what we need to give and to celebrate the people we need to celebrate. And so, Father, this moment, this holy moment, we give to you in Jesus' name. Amen.